2nd Thessalonians. Today we'll be in chapter 2, but we've got a lot of ground to cover here today. Um, so let me kind of set the stage for where we're going with this message, and the title is this. Counterfeit. Counterfeit. Y'all know what counterfeit is, right? You, you know what counterfeit means. Um, usually it's in regards to counterfeit bills, money, but it can be used in a, in a number of contexts. Let me read for you kind of kind of really the heart of the message today. It's, it's from a different New Testament epistle, a Testament epistle, Testament epistle uh, by the Apostle John. It's in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. It says this, Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. It's really the heart of the message today that I'm going to circle back to. But this idea of the spirit of the Antichrist that is in the world and has been in the world. Don't want you to be overwhelmed and extremely uncomfortable. Uh, but this is, once again, a topic in the Bible that we have to talk about that is life-giving. A New Testament scholar, Ben Worthington, actually wrote this poem that I was extremely moved by that I'm probably going to frame and put somewhere. It's, it's kind of wordy, but I'm going to read it for you, and, and if you would like it after the service, I'll give it to you. You're not going to be able to find it online. It's literally only in his personally written commentary. And he names it after a Latin saying that I forgot. That's actually the state motto of North Carolina, which is fascinating. So North Carolinians, if you're watching online, if you're going to move there one day, this might be pertinent for you. But the, the Latin is the title of his poem, which is translated into the English to say this. To be rather than to seem. Be. Be. Don't just seem. Don't give the appearance of. And here's his poem. Take me to the just side of justice and to the right side of righteousness. Not the vindictive side of vindication, for otherwise I do not wish to go. Lead me to the passionate side of compassion and to the gracious side of grace. Not the condescending side of mercy, for otherwise I remain remote, isolated, distant, for pity's sake. Push me past the traunt side of trouble and the pleasant side of pain, not allowing me to wallow in it, lest I marvel at my own martyrdom. Carry me to the service side of serving and the sacrificial side of sacrifice, not the calculating side of caring, for otherwise my generosity remains too frugal. Put me outside of my selfish Eden and beyond my creature comforts without raising Cain in my life, for I desire to be a remarkable, 
not a marked man. Fill me with an inextinguishable blaze, a peerless and fearless love, not a faltering flame or a fumbling forgiveness, for I desire to be christened with real Christ-likeness. May the Spirit make me spiritual and the Son shine in my light and the Father find me faithful lest I miss the kingdom's goal. To be rather than to seem counterfeit. I don't want to pretend. I don't want to speculate. I don't want to seem. I want to be. I hope today we want to be. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, starting in the first verse, says this. I can get you to scream like that here today. <laughs> Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, Paul speaking, whether by a prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God, capital G, or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Okay, so from the outset, to bring back to your remembrance, we have been studying in these two books, especially in these last few weeks, this topic of the return of Christ, the second coming of Christ, the parousia, his arrival, uh, his revelation of himself, that which we wait for, we yearn for, we ought to long for. That's what we've really been honing on based on Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. Now in 2 Thessalonians, Paul is not mad at the Thessalonians, because we know based on the rhetoric that he uses in 1 Thessalonians, very praiseworthy, very commending, very encouraging. And we still see that here. But Paul likely received a report later on from Timothy in a follow-up, uh, follow-up, that the Thessalonians, while still doing great, were still having some hang-ups on certain topics that he had already addressed. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, he addressed this. He says, now concerning times and dates, my brothers and sisters, I don't want you to be unaware. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. Well, he's repeating the same thing here. But now he really introduces some new subject matter concerning a rebellion, but in particular, the man of lawlessness, who we would understand traditionally in the church as the Antichrist, so deemed by the Apostle John in 1 John, as we read, and in the book of Revelation. Um, now, why I'm bringing this back to remembrance is because this has been a, a big topic, obviously, of discussion for Paul. And he has said before, we don't really need to write to you about these things anymore. Meaning, implying that he's already given them good teaching. But as we see here, there were individuals that were coming allegedly under the authority of Paul's apostolic authority. Saying, well actually, the second coming of Christ has already happened. 
Now, I just want you to stop and I want you to think if you're a believer here today, if you heard that taught from the pulpit, from my mouth today, if I said, Jesus already came back, stop and think about the implications of that. Well, what about all the scriptures that we've gone over that talk about that great trumpet? I didn't hear that. Well, what about the rapture? I haven't heard of any anomalies taking place of people randomly disappearing. Um, what, 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 what about all of the promises that God gives about, you know, eternal life and no more sorrow and no more destruction and no more pain that's going to come with the, the return of Christ? None of that's happened, so... That's what the Thessalonians also understood based on Paul's teaching as being characteristic of the second coming of Christ. These things will happen. But if somebody's coming and saying Jesus has come back and none of that has happened, uh-oh, we've got a problem with our faith. Maybe this was crazy. Maybe this was useless. Are we, are we just following some crazy belief system that we have no business being a part of? How do we handle this? Maybe you can see a little bit how this could be very much a disruption to your faith walk. And there could be so many other vast implications, but we know this was an issue that was needing to be addressed by Paul, and so he addresses it here. And he's really going to hone in on the man of lawlessness or the Antichrist. So he says, again, don't be easily unsettled, don't be alarmed by the idea that the parousia, the arrival, the second coming of Jesus, his revelation has already happened. It hasn't. Um, and he gives three descriptions of how they might have received this false teaching. He says, whether by um, prophecy, word of mouth, or letter. And that kind of covers all the bases, even in modern-day church circles, if you believe in prophetic words, which we as a church do, but we always line it up with the Word of God. Um, and we always go to the Word of God as our standard for truth. So uh, if somebody is coming in the teaching of the Bible saying, second coming has already happened, um, or as Paul did, writing a letter to instruct, or, or a, a book we could see in modern-day application, um, as saying the second coming has already happened. If you walk into a Christian bookstore, not Barnes & Noble, Barnes & Noble in the Christian section is going to be filled with Joel Osteen. Um, or, uh, I can't remember her name. Who? What? T.D. Jakes. We're going to have T.D. Jakes. Uh, Joyce Meyer, that's the name I was saying. Joyce Meyer, which, all right, whatever. I'm not talking bad about them or anything, but that's what you're going to find in Barnes & Noble. You go to a Christian bookstore, I promise you, if you actually take account of the percentage of topical books that are there on a certain theological topic, it will come down to in general, the, the return of Christ, but the majority of it, I promise you, is going to be about end times and the Antichrist. So much has been written about this particular individual, the Antichrist. More so than Satan, more so than demons, more so than angels. Dare I say more so than Jesus. There's this like fixation on the Antichrist in many, many, many different categories and in many different ways. And here's the point that I want us to draw out based on what Paul says. He's saying, I, I don't want you to be uninformed because whether it was by word of mouth, prophetic word, uh, or, or letter, it's not from us. So here's the application for us. Be careful with the information you're given. Hey, that includes today. Be careful with the information you're given. I have complete resolve in my heart that I'm giving you God's word. I study it. I have others around me to hold me accountable for it. That's my passion. 
So you're probably okay, but still. You need to take every word that's spoken or written by a human being, and you need to sift it through the lens, or however you say that, put it through the lens. I just say look at it through the lens. That works, right? Look at it through the lens of the Bible. You have to. If your Bible is not your standard, the standard, then there's going to be inconsistencies in your life, incongruencies, problems, stumbling blocks. Always go back to the Word. And Paul's saying, this is not the Word of God that we gave you. It's not. So don't buy it, don't believe it, whatever others are peddling. Now, don't get me wrong, there are a lot of good things that are written and a lot of helpful things that are written. I'm not saying any book on the Antichrist is bad, but I'm just showing you there is a fixation if you actually look on this topic, and a lot of crazy stuff has been written. Things that I used to believe as a kid because of books that were given me that have no biblical grounding, and they sound really spiritual and really helpful, and they have a lot of Jesus in it, and I believe they were written with a kind heart, but absolutely no awareness of biblical substance. We have to go to God's word. Otherwise, when it comes to this topic, the return of Christ, the latter days, the revelation, the Antichrist revelation, we are based on history so easily of missing the mark and going astray. Okay, so that's just that first point of application that I believe we see Paul saying that we can draw from it. So let's keep going. He says two things need to happen. If you want to know when the day of the Lord is actually going to take place, the parousia, well, you need to be on the lookout for two things. Now, these are two things that are regulated to this epistle. It's not exhaustive. Mark chapter 14 in the book of Revelation actually talk about other things that need to happen. So when you're talking about the parousia and the return of Jesus, you need to read all apocalyptic literature. The book of Daniel in the Old Testament we're going to reference a little bit. You need to read all of these. You can't just take this and say, this and only this. This is just a part of the pie, the puzzle that we're going to see. So here's the two of multiple things that we must see happen before, prior to, the imminent return of Christ can take place. Okay? We don't know when, but we know that these things need to happen. Number one, the Apostle Paul mentions a rebellion must occur. Scholars, as is the case with most of the things talked about in this chapter, have debated for centuries on what many of these terms mean. I'm not going to spend too much time on it, but there are two major camps that people will fall into as to what this means. Number one, it could be a political revolt where there's revolution taking place in the world, not just within the church, in the world. You see mass revolt taking place. We know this in Jewish history with the Maccabean revolt, and this was something that would have been very understood. This is something that Jews believed needed to take place for the Messiah to come. There would be a great revolt against the kingdom at that time. It would have been Rome. So this is one particular interpretation, which might not be totally wrong. The second major interpretation of this is that it was possibly a great apostasy of believers, a falling away. I'm more inclined personally to believe that this is the case of what Paul is talking about, but maybe not exclusively. Let me read for you 2 Timothy chapter 3. Starting in the first verse, I'm going to read the nine verses. And Paul tells Timothy the mark of those who are apostates, those who have fallen away. Mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, treacherous, rash, 
conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. See a lot of love here? That love ought to be aimed at something, and it's not, okay. Um, Having a form of godliness, but denying its power. Have nothing to do with such people, Paul says. They are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women, who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires. Always learning, but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Just as Iannis and Iambres opposed Moses, so also these teachers oppose the truth. They are men of depraved minds, who as far as the faith is concerned are rejected, condemned. But they will not get very far because as in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. So, And in chapter 4, he goes on and he gives another description quality that people are going to seek out teachers that only satisfy what their itching ears want to hear. Um, that, that's Paul giving a very, once again, the same, same author of Thessalonians in a different context to a different audience, his, you know, his mentee Timothy, his spiritual son, is saying these are going to be other signs in humanity that we see specifically of those who have known the Lord and have chosen to reject him. This is not talking about outsiders that have never heard the word of God. This is talking about people who, who have learned a whole lot, but they continually deny the truth. They continually reject it. That's going to be a part of this, I believe, rebellion. So if you come back to Thessalonians, which one is Paul talking about, a political rebellion or a religious rebellion? Honestly, maybe both. Maybe a little bit of both. Maybe we're going to see in the world chaos, masses, revolution. But it's not liberation. It's just fighting fire with fire, evil with evil. And that's going to lead to the church having a great rebellion against God because of fear of what's going on in the outside world and a desire to maybe be a part of that rather than God's way. We want revolution as opposed to sacrifice, forgiveness, turning the other cheek even when injustice surrounds us night and day. That's number one. And Paul just said it briefly, and I just tried to give you a little bit of depth to it, and now we need to move on because he spends the majority of his time with the man of lawlessness, and that's number two. What needs to happen? This man of lawlessness must appear. We already said he's also known as the Antichrist as categorized by John. If you look in the book of Daniel, he's described as the little horn. Um, He is the underling, maybe for all we know, the second greatest in the kingdom of hell under Satan himself. Then you have the Antichrist. Uh, Traditionally, we don't know that for sure, but it's likely. Um, And Paul describes the, the nature of this being that's going to appear in the latter times. He says, to start that there are two characteristics. Number one, he's very oppositional. Um, He is someone that is constantly going to be against specifically the ways and the word of God. And when it comes to God, not only is he oppositional, but he's extremely prideful. The Bible right here says that he will exalt himself to a place not as equal to, but greater than God. And we see that by his self-assertion, by placing himself on the throne of the temple of God. We'll get to that in a second. uh, In the book of Daniel, let me read for you. There's a description of what we believe a prophetic word concerning this man of lawlessness, written hundreds of years prior to Paul writing this, which is thousands of years from present day. Daniel 11, verse 36 says this, The king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every God and will say 
unheard of things against the God of gods. He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed, for what has been determined must take place. He will show no regard for the gods of his ancestors or for the one desired by women, nor will he regard any god, but will exalt himself above all. So you see this very arrogant, pompous, self-declared as the god individual. Um, This is really a form of idolatry of self. He so worships himself and demands that all others worship himself because he is God. He declares that he is God and there is none like him. And the God that has traditionally been seen as the God, which in our culture is widely understood, whether it's agreed with or not. Everybody knows the, the capital G God, the Yeshua, the Jesus. Like a lot of people, I would say, in American culture understand that. And this guy's going to come along and say, yeah, that God, he's nothing. I'm the one real God. That's what we see in, in the prophet Daniel and we see Paul saying here. He's setting himself up as an idol and he does it ultimately in, in the pinnacle of, of taking God's throne. It says that he's going to set himself up in the temple of God. Once again, traditionally, this is debated. A lot of people believe that he will literally set himself up in the temple of Jerusalem. Could be. Or this could be figurative. Uh, It could be that we're considered the temple of God. And so it has this more uh, idea that we're going to have people who reject the one true God to follow this God are going to hide this antichrist in their hearts and worship him. Thereby, he is the Lord of their lives enthroned in the temple of God. Once again, we don't know. Could be both. I'm kind of more inclined to think that it is the literal temple, but it certainly has bearing on the fact that, hey, we are the temple of God as well, and if we follow him and he's the Lord of our lives, metaphorically speaking, he's going to be on the throne of our lives. Okay, but um, this has strong imagery for not necessarily Gentiles, who Paul is primarily writing to, but to Jews of the time. Uh, There was a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes during the intertestamental period um, who set himself up as this version of the Antichrist as we see. Not knowingly, uh, but there was this great general who kind of sacked Jerusalem, overtook it, and came into the Jewish temple, ascended the steps, went into the Holy of Holy Place, Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was, God's throne on earth, where it was believed that the presence of God resided, that only once a year the high priest could enter to make atonement for the sins of all the people. And here comes Antioch Epiphanes, a Gentile, unclean, unworthy, walks in, and he sacrifices a pig right on that place in that Holy of Holies. And he establishes himself and says, I am God. I'm God. Worship me. And worship me in this profane way that was utterly detestable to Jewish practice. A pig, an unclean animal, in the Holy of Holies, being worshipped to a Gentile man, a man, a human. And then if it wasn't icing on the cake, he then had a, uh, a public declaration that all Jews were to bring their scriptures the scrolls, the Torah, some of the prophets, and have a public burning of those scrolls. You might have some thoughts going through your head of people throughout history. We'll get to that. This is imagery that is very important and pertinent because this is something that has taken place already. And if Jews were reading the books of Thessalonians, and especially this part of Thessalonians, this is going to become very visceral and very real to them saying, oh, Before Jesus comes back, there is going to be a man who comes 
who's going to present himself and act in a way, the way that that detestable man once did in our people's history. Okay. Things are getting real. Verse 5. Keep reading. It says this, Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? And now you know what is holding him, the Antichrist, back so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. I loved all of that. Let me tell you why I loved all of that. Um, we see Paul say, hey, hey, li- listen, listen, listen. If you're afraid that Jesus has already come, he hasn't. As we've established, the rebellion must take place and the men of lawlessness must take place. Uh, the men of lawlessness must come. Now, let me help you understand how the man of lawlessness has not yet come because all of these things are going to happen. And why hasn't it happened yet? Why hasn't the man of lawlessness been revealed yet in these latter times? Why not? Ultimately, um, we we see this image of a, a, a thing or a person holding this man of lawlessness back. Once again, another topic that is vastly debated. Um, Many believe that what this thing or person is that's holding back this antichrist, the man of lawlessness, from being unleashed upon the world is maybe a governmental structure, maybe a political structure that the antichrist won't be able to thrive in yet, and he's waiting for the right governmental structure to be able to impose his will upon the world. Maybe. Maybe it's a person, a ruler, like an emperor or a public figure through whom he's going to be able to uh, usurp and take the place of once that person has set the stage. Maybe. We don't know. Many people, it's more of a modern belief, believe that it could be the Holy Spirit holding back the man of lawlessness until the time comes. Possibly. Many believe that it could be God himself. I I think that goes without saying uh, through the authority of God. Um, But then... Here's where I'm going to land, and again, you take with it as you will. It's a combination of the last two. Um, Many believe that it's until the gospel has been preached to all the world, until everybody hears the message of Jesus Christ. Not until that happens will then God say, okay, the man of lawlessness can go and, and wreak havoc. But then many also believe that it is an angel under the authority of God, likely Michael the archangel, who according to Jewish literature is the greatest of the angels, the greatest of the beings apart from the holy triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I think it's a combination of both. Let me explain it to you this way. Um, If you run to Revelation chapter 12, starting in the seventh verse, it says this, speaking historically of the great battle that took place between Lucifer, Satan before his fall to the earth, and the angels of heaven. Verse 7, then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. The dragon in Revelation is synonymous with Satan. But he, Satan, was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. So Michael the archangel is leading all of the angels in battle against the other angels who are antagonistic against God, who are now Satan and his forces of darkness. And they lose. And they're cast down to earth. 
Now if we jump to Revelation chapter 20, John gives us this imagery of what's going to happen when the great tribulation is over and Jesus returns and says enough and he's going to bind Satan. And I love this imagery because Michael is the executioner or the warden. Watch and listen to this imagery. John says in chapter 20 verse 1, And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, And holding in his hand a great chain, he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil, or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be set free for a short time. Again, Jewish literature believes that that's referring to Michael the archangel. I think there's a lot of merit to that. And so if I'm to assume that that's Michael, then I'm going to say that my belief is that this thing, this force that is holding back the Antichrist from being unleashed upon the world is the archangel or an angel of great power and great authority. And I love the imagery that I have in my mind of, of an angel holding this little weasel back. And, and again, I, I think I've described it this way, but, but one professor explained it as if it's, it's a dog that is rabid and weak and skinny and mangy and nasty that just wants to attack, but you have this great brolic figure that just has its foot on the dog's neck and says, nope, you're not going anywhere. You're not going anywhere. You're not going to that. So that's, that's the imagery that I have in my head. Why? Well, I think that's where the gospel comes in. Why? Why, why? why does any of this even have to happen? God, why don't you just stop him? Why, why are you allowing, giving him, uh, you're keeping him in prison, but then you're going to let him out to unleash havoc upon the world? Why are you doing that? We talked a lot about the justice of God last week. I would encourage you to go back and listen to that message because it gives some answers to this question of why does God allow things like this, evil things like this. But I think in particular, it shows us the forbearance of God. Because last week, we talked about the fact that who gets to decide who's good and who's bad? If we look at the world and say, God, why do you allow evil into the world? Why don't you take care of evil? Where you're assuming that you're good. And Paul says that, for we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Whether you are Hitler or you are Mother Teresa, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So if you make a moral judgment and say, well, God, why aren't you taking care of the evil? God's saying, hey, pal, look in the mirror. Forbearance, mercy. Oh, but they haven't, I've never done what they have done. Guess what? I don't discriminate. There will be a reckoning for all based on the things done in the body, whether good or bad. But right here, right now, you want me to take care of, you want me to be just? Guess what? You're going to be in that same camp of evil ones that need to experience my wrath. There is no one righteous, no, not one. So that, that's the short answer of it. And right here, we see the mercy of God. God saying, I'm holding back because the man of lawlessness needs to come. As Daniel said, these are things that were predestined to happen. It's got to happen, and he's got to come. But I'm holding him back because once he comes back, end times. Then Jesus is coming. Time's done. Time's up. It's going to be very short. Many believe it could be seven years of tribulation before Jesus comes back. Is that literal, allegorical? Don't know. We're not going to really get into that here. This is a vast topic that we don't have time to talk about in one sermon. So however long it is, the minute this dude shows up, meaning the minute God says to maybe this angel, 
hey, let your foot off of his neck. Let that dog go and do his thing. Give him his little short time unleashed on the world before we come back and the true reckoning takes place and evil is wiped out once and for all and I call my people back home to be with me in eternal glory. Hey, before that happens, God is giving us a chance until all the world knows, until all the world hears. Paul, his whole life, his whole life as an, ap- as an apostle traveling from town to town, region to region, city to city, even giving his life so he could stand before the emperor himself of Rome and declare the gospel. He says, who will go? Who, who will know unless someone goes, unless someone preaches the gospel? It was Paul's life to share the gospel of Jesus because he believed it has to happen. Because until the gospel reaches all of the ends of the earth, possibly, the imminent return of Christ is is still waiting to happen. Again, I don't claim to say that Jesus can't come back right now. He can. I, I I don't know what the measuring stick is for everybody that's heard the gospel. Maybe everybody has heard the gospel. And we're, the, the return of Christ is going to happen like that. We're going to see the man of lawlessness any day rise to power. I, I don't know. But this is what Paul is giving us a, a broad picture of understanding to see. So why is God keeping his foot on the neck of this Antichrist before allowing him to be unleashed? I think it's nothing short of mercy for us. Because he wants all humanity to know and to be saved before the final revelation of Jesus takes place because then it's just a matter of time. Okay. And that, that's that point. I'll just throw at you if you want to write it down. People need to hear the gospel. People need to hear the gospel. Why is the Antichrist being held back? My interpretation, people need to hear the gospel. All right, let's keep going. Um, he, he talks about uh, the secret power of lawlessness at work. And this is really going to bring it back to the, the topic and the point of our message um, and the title of the message of, of counterfeit. <sighs> Let me go back to you and read for you First John chapter 2, but I'm going to read 18 and 19 for you. Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but their going showed that none of them belonged to us. They were with us. They were a part of us. They were one of us. And they walked away. They denied. They rejected. Now, again, the context there really gives us an imagery of believers, right? But uh, I, I just want to give you some, some characters that maybe we've seen over history like Antiochus, Antiochus Epiphanes uh, that, that really maybe have to do with the spirit of the Antichrist, you know. Um, Pharaoh. Pharaoh. We see a man who executed the masses of the children of the Israelites out of fear that his throne would have been usurped and murdered innocent babies as you read in the Old Testament. I think that's the spirit of the Antichrist at work. 
Antiochus, Antiochus Epiphanes, as we discussed. Julius Caesar, the first and the greatest emperor of Rome, um, following one of his final greatest victories. Uh, statues of him were erected in various places in Macedonia, this very region that Paul is writing to the Thessalonians, who are a part of it. And many statues are around this whole region with the, of Julius Caesar with the inscription Theos Epiphanes, which means God manifests, the epiphany. A statue of a man, an emperor, God manifest. Herod the Great, just like Pharaoh, as we read in the New Testament, out of fear of the coming Messiah, ordered that all Hebrew babies, males, under the age of, I think it was two, be put to death. Another, it, it's called the Massacre of the Innocents, just like Pharaoh. Herod Agrippa I, who's mentioned in Acts chapter 12, uh, is, is said in Acts chapter 12 uh, to have dressed in gold so that the sun would radiate off of him, and as this happened, people would shout, the voice of a god, the voice of a god. In Acts, in Acts chapter 12, it says an angel of God struck him dead and he was eaten by worms because he didn't immediately stop and say, no, I'm not God. But he received that, I, yeah, I am God. I am God. Spirit of the Antichrist, worship me. I am God. Worship me. Nero. Maybe you know who Nero is. You've heard about him in the New Testament, especially in Paul's time. This was likely the emperor Paul stood before. He would, out of sport, burn Christians. He was considered insane. Recorded to have murdered his own mother out of fear in his own mind that she was going to do something to him. Anybody that got close to him ended up dying. Very similar to Herod the Great. And then who do we know, not maybe within our lifetime, but very close to it, that represents a lot of this? Hitler. I mean, do, do you see this commonality amidst these historical figures? And there are so many more that I haven't even begun to list off for you. Fearful of a people, murdering them portraying as, it, you, you know, a lot of people say, well, Hitler was a Christian. He was Roman Catholic, and he practiced it. Does that make him a Christian? No. He portrayed the truth, but was a liar, embodied the deceitfulness of the Antichrist, who embodies the deceitfulness of Satan, the father of lies himself. So in 1 John, we see historically this bearing itself out, that the spirit of the Antichrist has already gone out into the world and is at work. Even though you got that dog subdued for a time, his spirit, his essence is still infecting the world. And where I think we need to be especially careful is understanding the context in which John is speaking, and I believe Paul is speaking, you can't let it infect you, the church, and fall away. But Jesus will overthrow the man of lawlessness. The breath of his mouth and the splendor of his coming will be his instruments to overthrow the man of lawlessness. I love that. This is Jesus saying, I'm going to bring down the coming of the Antichrist. My coming is going to overshadow, usurp, and destroy this counterfeit's coming. We're going to come back to that in a second. Let me keep reading. Verse 9. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie. 
and all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refused, watch this, to love the truth and so be saved. Spirit of the Antichrist at work deceiving people overtook the people of God because of this one particular reason. They refused to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie. i got to read that one for you one more time. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. That's an uncomfortable verse to read. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about that whole section as we close this chapter. Here now we really see Paul painting this picture of a, of a comparison and a contrast between the Antichrist and the Christ. Focusing on the Antichrist, he operates under a higher power, Satan. We know Jesus affirms with his own mouth that even though he is God, he operates under the authority of the Father in heaven. You see the comparison. All right, there is this great coming, this revelation, the same words that Paul has used, the parousia, the revelation, and the epiphanes. The, the, the arrival, the revelation, and then the, 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 just the appearance, the epiphany, the shocking appearance are all used as well to describe the Antichrist here. Just as Jesus is going to show up that way, so the Antichrist is going to show up that way. And he's going to say, I am God. What did Jesus say in his first coming? I and the Father are one. Jesus said, I am God. What did Jesus do that caused the droves and the masses of people to come to him? Perform many miracles. What did it say he's going to do? He's going to have all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders, but they serve the lie. So just as Jesus did miraculous outpourings of his manifestation, so through the Antichrist manifestation, there are going to be these miraculous outpourings of displays and signs and wonders. I just think that that deserves a quick note. Don't undermine undermine the power and the efficacy of the devil. He's got tools. And according to Paul, he's going to do a lot of things that are going to be like, Jesus is here. Oh my gosh. The power of God is in that place. The, the power of God is in that place. Which God are you serving in that moment? Which God are you worshiping in that moment? Stop undermining the devil as just some little tiny red dude with a pitchfork that if I say three Hail Marys is going to go running away and throw some holy water, he's out of here. I'm not saying that you have not been given complete authority in Jesus to subdue the enemy. You have. He has no power over you, but you've got to know which Jesus you're serving. He's the anti-Christ. But the word Christ is still in there. So it goes to show how deceptive and how cunning and how powerful his work is. And we've got to be aware of it. We've got to know what to look for because his version of his gospel serves his lie, not the truth. So there's this comparison. So here, here's, here's Pastor Justin's 2022 extra name for the Antichrist. It's not biblical. Um, but it's derived from all this that we've been reading. I'm going to also call the Antichrist or the little horn or the man of lawlessness the counterfeit Christ. Is that fair? Do you think that's fair? Maybe a little bit. 
Maybe you got to chew on it a little bit. The counterfeit Christ. Because he's presenting himself as real, as having worth, as being able to give you something that you otherwise don't have without. He is presenting himself as a currency that you can use that will better your life. And I am here to echo the words of Paul. It's a lie. It is counterfeit. He's the counterfeit Christ. Now, Paul, he, he, he says all of this, and he shows us what to look out for, but ultimately, he's really giving us the answer of how we can know. You know, like when you ever feel embarrassed when you go to the store and you give a 50 or a 100, maybe if you use cash till today, um, and you have a 50 or a $100 bill and you pay with it, and then the cashier is like, hmm, let me see about that. Hold on a second. Let me, uh, let me get the marker. And they get that little yellow or pink highlighter or whatever it is, and they, they mark the bill and they wait to see, and I don't know what they're looking for. I have no idea. I've never been taught. I, I worked as a cashier in, in two different settings, and I received bills all the time, and I never knew. And, there were, and I didn't even pretend. At times, I was tempted to be like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. It's real. Good job. All right, thank you. I never did that because I didn't know what to look for. So maybe somebody can light me after service today. But, but that, that, that's, again, this idea where he's giving you something, and you need to metaphorically take that highlighter, hold it up to the sun. Is this real or is this fake? Is this a counterfeit? And how do you do that? Paul shows us what those who were led astray, the apostates, whatever you want to call them, however you want to interpret this, those who fell away. He says this is the, the telltale sign of individuals and how they didn't check to see if it was counterfeit. He says they refused to love the truth. They refused to love the truth. The short and sweet. How do we avoid being tricked into trusting the Antichrist? How do we avoid that? How do we not fall into that pitfall and follow him as the Christ, but know he's the counterfeit Christ? You need to do this. It's simple. Love truth. Love truth. Truth. Something that I hear a lot today in our culture. But it's a version of truth that I'm not familiar with at all. But it's described as truth. Before we get to that, let's go back. Um, how did it say Jesus' coming will overthrow the, the false representation, this counterfeit Antichrist's coming? It said by, by the, the word of his mouth, the breath, excuse me, of his mouth, and the splendor of his coming. Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. He's the word, according to the Apostle John. The Apostle John writes in Revelation that from his mouth comes a, a sword of light. It's almost like lightning, I imagine, coming forth from his mouth. And Jesus is truth, the way, the truth, the life. He speaks nothing but truth. He is truth. He's the embodiment of it. And he, in his coming, is the true Christ. And so I think we see a representation, while I believe literal, also metaphorical here, that shows us how Jesus overthrows the Antichrist. That which claims to be truth, the truth, shows up and through the word of his mouth and his glorious appearance says, uh-uh, truth is here. My being is here. So now you see what truth is and what false is. Only Jesus is truth. I got to hear an amen to that. Only Jesus is truth. 
And his appearance embodies that. And he's going to prove that the Antichrist really is a counterfeit Christ by showing us the real thing. Now, kind of ends this chapter in a heavy way. And he goes on and he talks about in verse 11 that God is going to send a powerful delusion to those who don't love the truth, but they want to get in on this lie that the Antichrist is circulating. And honestly, I read this and I can't help but see, it's going to sound weird, but kind of in a tongue-in-cheek way, generosity of God. Let me explain for you what I mean by that. Um, You know I reference Romans a lot. Um, especially what I'm about to reference, and then I'm going to read for you in, in Romans chapter 1. There's this great exchange of currency using the theme that I've been using of exchanging the truth for a lie in order for humanity to gratify the desires of the sinful nature and the sinful flesh. And Paul lists a whole litany of sinful manifestations that take place when we exchange the truth of God for a lie, the glory of God for the immoral and the idolatrous. And I've described it this way. If I was to paraphrase what God would say, okay, you want want the lie and you don't want me, you don't want the truth, okay, I am not here to strong arm you. I'm not going to force you. I'll give you what you want. I have been saving you from this. I've been protecting you from this. I've been holding you from this by my spirit, by my word, by my ways, by my life, by my everything. But you time and time again have rejected it. So, okay. That, that's, if you go back and read Romans 1 and then you remember what I just said, I, that's, that's kind of how I would summarize just that one chapter. Chapter 2. Um, but here in Thessalonians, the same author, Paul, I think he's taking it, he is taking it a step further. He indicates that God will also provision us with the tools of our own destruction. He says, therefore... As we continue to pursue the lie and we exchange the truth of God for a lie to follow this antichrist, God's saying, okay, fine. You know what? You want to continue to reject me? Not only am I going to allow you to go and give you over to it, let me help you. You want everything that comes with this, so I'm going to give you all the tools that come with that lifestyle, that way, to aid you in your journey of destruction. But remember, it's your choice. I think that's what he's saying here. Remember Saul who continued to reject God's way in the book of the Old Testament, the one who was the anointed man of God? He kept rejecting God's way so much that finally God said, fine, I remove my anointing from you. I I, I remove you from this throne. One is going to rise up who has a, a heart after my own heart, King David. And it's very interesting in the Old Testament, as we went through this sermon series months ago, we, we read how it says that God sent the, uh, the, the king, Saul, at the time, an evil spirit to vex him an instrument of destruction. God gave it to him. Saul said, I don't want to follow your ways, God. I don't want to obey your truth, God. I want to go after my truth, my way. I want to write my story. God says, okay. Well, then you get everything that comes with that. Here you go. I was holding this from you. I was saving you from this. Remember, 
Even though Satan might have been granted dominion on earth for a time, God is still in control of all the forces of the realms, both light and dark. Again, if you agree with my interpretation of this about the angel, God's in control of the Antichrist. He does not get to go until God says so. He's in charge. There is war, but he's in charge. So, let me say this to you. It's one of my last points. It's this. God's judgment is always a response to our actions. His judgment is based on what we do. He's not arbitrary. He's not assuming in, in, in his omniscience. He doesn't assume in his omniscience. He's not looking at our wrong actions and saying, okay, he's going to or she's going to do this, therefore I'm going to judge them as right or wrong, righteous or wicked. He doesn't do that. Even in his omniscience, knowing what we're going to do, he lets us make the decision. And then based on our decision, our choices, then, then he judges. God is not corrupt. God is not arbitrary. God doesn't make assumptions. He's perfect in all of his ways. And so what judgment you receive from God, you need to understand you were the author of. You ultimately made your own bed. So I, I mentioned Romans. Let me just read for you what Paul says, and I've been using Paul's language, and you'll hear it. Verse 21, he says this concerning those who didn't want God. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being. Birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, that's it. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. God's judgment is always a response to our actions. Man, do you understand how much God loves you? That he sent his son this season to take on humanity, the flesh, and live a perfect, sinless life. Not for him, but for us. So that we would live in our created purpose to bring glory to God which is why we were created, which gives us life, which gives us hope, which gives us breath, which gives us assurance, which gives us peace. Why we were created. God, he doesn't need it. He showed us, you want to live the way that you were supposed to live and have life and joy and peace and hope and contentment? You got to live my truth. You got to love me. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. It's the hope that's in Jesus. That's the hope that we celebrate this Christmas season. That Jesus came for you and for me 
so that we don't have to be left ignorant. We don't have to be left wondering, how, how can I live this life? How can I have hope? What happens to me when all of this is over? How, how can I overcome the wickedness in the world? What, what, how do I make sense of this life itself? Jesus gave you everything you would ever need for the answers to those questions. For the whole that's in us, that nothing ever seems to fit and to fill up, but just keeps us running. Jesus satiates that. Jesus satisfies that. Jesus quenches that. It's in Jesus that we have all that we have need of. And Paul says to the Thessalonians, don't believe any of that garbage. Don't get worried that, that maybe Jesus has already come and that you've missed out on his promises and what he has for you. Uh-uh. That's trash. That's garbage. Let me remind you of what's got to take place first. This has all got to take place. Paul is giving hope to individuals that are facing persecution, that are facing heartache and difficulty. And that the very reason for their hope to keep on keeping on, to keep being strong, to keep the faith, is trying to be undermined and usurped by the spirit of the Antichrist himself, I believe, by saying, Oh, that very hope that you have, null and void. Jesus already came back, and what are you being persecuted? Might as well turn away from the faith. Nope. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. He came once, and he's coming again. Amen. Man, I hope that gives you hope. Would you stand with me on your feet today? I know there's so much more to this topic. We got the tribulation we could talk about. You pre-mid or post-tribbers, the millennial reign of Christ, all that fun stuff. Uh, we'll, maybe we'll do a midweek on that one of these days. Um, don't serve a counterfeit God. Don't serve a counterfeit Christ. Because trust me, his spirit, according to the Apostle Paul, is at work today and has been at work. Watch out. Love truth. Okay, as I close, I just... Uh, I just Felt that I really needed to share this um, this morning. I didn't write it, and I just wanted to trust God to see if it was, and I just, I have this burning in my heart. <sighs> there's a topic that you've heard me say that I know a lot of you have said, and there's no condemnation, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it. Live your truth. Maybe many of you have heard that. Maybe many of you have said that. It's okay. Um, I just want to talk about that briefly. You need to be very careful with saying that phrase. I think there's a lot of power to that phrase in a good way because I think on a good side, that phrase represents this idea of it's my story. So in other words, I woke up this morning. It's done, it's finished, it's in the past, and it happened, and nothing can change that. It's my truth. If you use it in that light, it's not technically wrong, but that's not the heart of that. That's never really how I hear it. It's about claiming your story as absolute. And here's what I mean by that. It means that you are an unchangeable figure in your current state. And it's a wall. I know this is harsh, but it's a wall that's erected for us to hide behind with our insecurities, our insufficiencies, our addictions, our shortcomings. That we can then walk upright, broken. And we can say, I am this, because it's my truth. It might not be the case for you, but it's the case for me. This is my truth but you're walking and living broken. 
Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Listen, 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 your, your, your story on this earth, it's actually not about you. It's about Jesus. You are not the main character in this story. Jesus is. And we are privileged to be a part of his story. And my goodness, has he given us so much. He's given his life for us. That's amazing. And a part of his story, his truth that we ought to embody and live in is that you don't need to be defined by what you are, what you struggle with, what you are insecure about, what makes you broken. You are set free from that. You might still walk and struggle with it, but you don't have to wear it as if it's a cloak of freedom. It's not. It's a deceit. It's a lie that the Antichrist wants you to live in because he wants you to live broken. He wants you to follow his ways. Don't believe that liar. Don't believe the lies that others have spoken over you or that maybe you have spoken over yourself time and time again. You are a new creation in Jesus. I can never say that enough. I really can't. So walk renewed in the renewing of your minds transformed by the power of the gospel, declared here today, and will continue to be declared as long as I have breath and follow the Lord. Follow the gospel. Follow the truth. Follow Jesus. Does that make sense? All right, let me pray over you. Jesus, we honor you today. Oh, man, your word is just so good. Thank you for life and breath and hope. Jesus, as the, the breath of your mouth spoken in your coming that will accomplish so much, you will call the dead to rise. You will tell wickedness to cease. And you will cast into the abyss Satan himself, by the word of your mouth and the glory of your presence and nothing more? Who, Jesus. I'm so thankful to be a child of, of your kingdom. I'm so thankful to be your son. I'm so thankful for my brothers and sisters here who call upon your name, who trust in you, who follow your ways. Father, I pray that they would walk, walk in step with your spirit. I pray that they would heed your voice. Jesus, I pray that as we step into this season of, of celebrating your incarnation, your coming in the flesh, I pray that we would not for a second miss how significant that first step of sacrifice and service represents and what it represents for us. Would we not miss that, Jesus? Father, I just, I thank you that your spirit is at work in the church of glad tidings. I thank you for your people. Father, as we leave this place, I pray that, God, we would go with you. We would live your truth through our lives. Help us to see and to know and to watch out for the spirit of the Antichrist. He's a counterfeit Christ. May we never forget that. May we never be deceived by it, I pray. And in Jesus' mighty name, the people of God said, Amen.